Uh, my name is Josh Miller, and I'm the lead pastor here at Center Church. And if you're a guest with us this morning, I want to give you a special shout out. We are really psyched that you're here, and I would love to meet you after the service and just get to know you a little bit. I also want to give a big shout out to the group that filled in the third row. Way to go, everybody. All right. We moved it down. Now, I want to point out, we have one person sitting on the second row, and it's Justin, and he's very lonely, okay? He's very lonely. So next week, we can just move it all down one more row, and Justin will have friends, and it'll be fantastic, okay? Um, but thank you guys for, for filling in uh, on, on the seats. Over the last few weeks, we have been working chapter by chapter through the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 17. And as you do that, I want to conduct a little thought experiment, okay? A little thought experiment. So I'm going to say a word, and I want you to capture the first image that comes into your mind when I say that word. All right, you guys ready? Holiness. Holiness. Okay? Try to capture the image, whatever image it was that first came into your mind when I said the word holiness. As I thought about man, what images might come to mind uh, in, a, in a group like this, a, a couple came to my mind. The first was maybe the image of like a grandparent, maybe a grandmother that, that you have that prays for her grandchildren every day. So maybe your image of holiness is a really positive one. I thought that uh, for other people, holiness might bring kind of a mystical person to mind. You know, someone who lives in the Himalayas by themselves and speaks in parables, right? Kind of like a human version of Yoda, right? Somebody that, that seems very kind of like they, they kind of float above this world. So sort of a mystical image. And then I thought for others, it might bring a negative image to mind. Maybe you went to a really strict school growing up, and when you think holiness, you think the teacher that used to smack your knuckles, right, when you would speak up in class, or maybe uh, an adult or a parent that wouldn't let you do things that you really wanted to do, and so you have sort of a negative image associated with holiness. Um, I think holiness brings a lot of different images to mind, particularly in our culture, and, and people have a lot of different ideas about what it means. But if you're going to understand the Bible, if you're going to understand and really know the God of the Bible, it's important that we start to understand what the Bible means when it talks about holiness. Because holiness is the word that is used to describe God more than any other word in the Bible, by far. More than the word love, more than the word grace, more than the word mercy or power, it's holiness. In fact, any time that you're reading the scriptures and you, you get a vision of heaven and of God's throne, there's always these creatures that are flying around God and they're proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Every time. They're not saying loving, loving, loving. They're not saying mercy, 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 or power, power, power. Those things are all true of God, but the creatures are always proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. You see, if you and I are going to really know God, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, if you want to know God better, you have to understand what the Bible means when it talks about holiness. Attached to that is if you have become a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to understand holiness because it has become God's entire agenda in your life. It has become his entire agenda. You know how when a president gets elected, they have their 100 days agenda? You know what I'm talking about? Where they basically roll out the most important thing for their presidency, and they're going to push towards it for the first 100 days. God's 100 days agenda in your life is holiness. It, it just is. In every single area of your life, that is God's plan now. So if you said to me, Josh, what kind of spouse should I be looking for? I would say a holy one. If you said, what kind of parent should I be striving to be? I would say a holy one. If you said, what should characterize my relationships or, or my attitude at work, I would say holiness. You see, holiness is God's agenda in your life. If you were a follower of Jesus, that is what he is doing in your life. He is using your circumstances to make you holy, to make you more like him. 
That being the case, it's really important that we start to understand holiness. Holiness really matters. It's kind of how you could summarize everything I'm saying. Holiness really matters. And in this section of Ephesians 4, Paul is going to flesh this out for us. He is going to teach us three specific things about holiness. These, this isn't everything about holiness. You'd have to do a whole, you'd have to study the entire Bible to have an entire understanding of holiness. But these are three important things that Paul is going to teach us about holiness. The first is where holiness comes from. The second is really that we were created for holiness. And the third is that holiness is fleshed out in our relationships. Okay, so we're going to jump right in. Verse 17, here'd be my first point. Holiness is produced by listening to God's word. So if you're saying, Josh, how do I become holier? Where does holiness come from? My answer would be, and Paul's answer would be, it comes from listening to God's word. Verse 17, Paul says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul uses the word walk to uh, basically describe our beliefs and our behaviors. And so what he's saying in this verse is, you must stop believing and behaving like people who don't know God. So the word Gentiles was just a phrase that Paul used to refer to anyone who didn't know God, regardless of ethnicity. So it didn't really refer in terms to Gentiles and ethnicity, but just a relationship with God. And he says, you must stop walking like the Gentiles do. You should behave differently from your non-Christian neighbor or coworker or family member. Following Christ should make a difference in your beliefs and in your behaviors. Holiness really matters. So where does holiness come from? Well, Paul is going to tell us that it is produced by listening to God's word. When we fail to listen to God's word, it produces wickedness. When we listen to God's word, it produces holiness. Paul starts with the negative side of this relationship, okay? So he's going to show us how a failure to listen to God's word will inevitably lead to wickedness. This is verses 17 through 19. He says, the people who don't know God, so the Gentiles, are walking, verse 17 and 18, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, and they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Greek scholar Frank Thielman points out that the grammatical structure of this sentence teaches us that it's a progression. Okay, so each thing that Paul mentions builds to the next. I like to think of it as a domino effect, okay? Have you ever set up a long line of dominoes and then knock them over? It's very satisfying, isn't it, right? Like, do the whole thing, you hit it's like, right, the whole thing. Well, how, do, how does a line of dominoes work? Well, you set them up close to one another, and as long as you don't touch the first domino, it all stands. But if you knock over the first domino, it's only a matter of time before the whole thing is coming down, right? It's a progression. Well, what Paul is telling us is that Sin and wickedness in our lives is like a domino line. It's like a progression. He's going to lay out how that progression works. You see, if you really look carefully at what Paul's saying, he says that the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding and they are alienated from the life of God because of or due to their hardness of heart. So hardness of heart is domino number one in the domino line of wickedness. Domino one is hardness of heart. Domino two is darkening of understanding. Dark, uh, domino three is callousness towards God. Domino four is practicing every kind of impurity. So if you don't want the dominoes to fall down, if you want to fight against that progression in your life, what should we do? Well, we need to deal with that first domino. We need to deal with hardness of heart. So what does it mean to have a hard heart or what does it mean to be hard-hearted? Well, it means to reject God's word. 
It means to hear God's word but choose not to obey. All throughout scripture, those who reject God's word and don't obey it are said to have hard hearts or stiff necks. It's kind of the biblical imagery. And there's a famous illustration of this in Exodus chapter 8. So Exodus is the story of God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he did this mostly through the prophet Moses, right? So you may have heard of Moses. So God sent Moses to Pharaoh with a message. And the message was, let my people go. It was very clear. It was very direct. And Pharaoh simply refused. He said, no, I'm not going to let your people go. I'm going to keep them. So in response, God brought plagues upon Egypt to warn Pharaoh and to say, Pharaoh, don't continue to harden your heart, but listen to me. And Pharaoh continued to reject God's word until the fourth, the fourth plague was flies. And for whatever reason, that was it for Pharaoh, right? I kind of get that in the summertime. It's like, that's enough, right? So Pharaoh's like, that's enough. Okay, I'll finally listen. I will let your people go. And Moses is like, great. But then after the plague stops, after the flies are taken away, this is what Exodus chapter 8, verse 32 says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also. So this was not a first time thing for Pharaoh and did not let the people go. So Pharaoh clearly understood what God had said. He clearly understood God's word. He just chose to reject it. He chose not to live in light of God's truth. And as a result, the plagues became more and more severe and ultimately led to Pharaoh's demise. Paul is urging us not to be like Pharaoh. Paul is urging us not to harden our hearts against what God's word says. Because it will lead to our demise, what Paul calls alienation from the life of God. Right? Like it had for Pharaoh and like it had for the Gentiles that Paul is describing. Now, I doubt that any of you have been visited by a prophet of God recently. Right? None of you are, you know, holding a whole people enslaved, I don't think, right? So what does this look like for us today? We're certainly not Pharaoh, so what does it look like for us to harden our hearts? Well, I had a professor in seminary who described it this way. He said, when you become a Christian, you take the keys of your life and you hand them over to God. So think of your life like a spiritual house. And God moves in through his spirit and he starts to clean things up, right? So he cleans up the kitchen. It's kind of a mess. And he goes into the living room and it's kind of a disaster. And he's working on a bunch of different things. And then he comes to a room that's locked. He comes to a room that's locked. It's some area of your life that you've said, you can have this, but you can't have this area. Right? You can't, I'm keeping this door locked. This one is off limits. And my professor said, the spirit of God stops and doesn't move on until you unlock that door. So your growth in Christ, your, your growth in spiritual formation is stunted until you open that door and let God's spirit in. So if, if you want to know where you're hardening your heart, ask this question, what rooms do I have locked in my life? What rooms or what areas of your life have you said to God, this one's off limits? Right? Maybe it's the area of financial generosity. Maybe it's the area of sexual purity. Maybe it's the area of church commitment. You know what God's word says. It's clear, but you're just not willing to trust and to obey him in that area of your life. You've got that door locked. Paul would say, hey, you, in, that's, that's an area where you're hardening your heart. You're not listening to God's word. You haven't trusted God with that area of your life. And that might not seem like a big deal at first, right? I mean, nobody's perfect, right? So certainly we all have doors that are locked, areas that we're not letting God have his way. But Paul goes on to say that it's really serious because remember, this is a domino effect. So when we lock one door in our house, it has implications. When we continually reject what God says in one area of our life, we actually become callous towards him. 
the dominoes start to fall. Look at verse 19. Paul writes, Because they, the Gentiles, have hardened their hearts, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So to be callous means to have an insensitive disregard for another person. To have an insensitive disregard for another person. And when we reject God's word in any area of our life, we become less sensitive to him in that area of our life. We become less sensitive to his spirit. We become callous. We don't feel as as accurately. Imagine that you passed a needy woman on the street every day when you went to work. Right? For the first week or so, you would probably feel some sort of compulsion to help, some sort of compulsion to do something, maybe to, and to give her a gift card or a, or a granola bar or something or a bottle of water. But imagine you just continually repressed that feeling. Every day that you went by, you just chose, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that. Well, over time, do you know what would probably happen? You'd probably stop feeling at all. You would just, you'd be so used to just kind of, you know, you wouldn't probably even see her. You would have hardened your heart or calloused your heart towards God's spirit in that area of your life. Well, see, the same thing happens in areas like financial generosity or sexual purity or church commitment or whatever room it is for you that is currently locked or off limits to God. The longer that we keep an area of our life off limits to God, the less sensitive we become to him in that area. And here's what's dangerous. I know that I've done this. You don't feel bad about it. Do you know why? Because you've, you've, you've cut off God's spirit from that area of your life. So you don't actually feel that bad about that area. You don't really feel conviction. And I know if if you're anything like me, you can then assume, well, then this must not be a big deal. If I don't feel conviction, if I don't feel bad about it, then certainly this can't be, this can't be that serious, but actually the opposite is true, right? If you lose feeling in a part of your body, that doesn't mean that that part of your body is okay, right? Oh, great. My hand doesn't hurt anymore. It must be, well, you don't feel it at all. Maybe you've lost your hand or maybe something really serious is going on. See, unfortunately, I think that there's whole areas of our lives, I know this is true for me, where we've rejected God for so long that we don't, even, we don't even think it's a big deal. We maybe don't even think about it. That doesn't mean that it's not a big deal. It just means that, man, we are really callous towards him, and we need his help to become less callous. And Paul, Paul's really serious in this section. He says, look, this isn't a small thing. If you become callous to God in any area of your life, it leads to every kind of impurity. You see, that's what happened to the Gentiles. They didn't start living in every kind of impurity, greedy to practice evil. They started with a little hardness of heart. They started with a little bit of callousness, and that grew over time. You might say that, it, that sin is a slow fade, right? It happens bit by bit. We don't realize how deep we are until, by God's grace, he wakes us up. He wakes us up. And the good news is that if you are here this morning, if you are a Christian here this morning, God's spirit now dwells within you. And what the spirit of God wants to do in your life is remove the calluses from your heart. And the spirit wants to press in on areas that you're not receiving God's word. Do you know why? Because God's word brings life. Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life abundant. You see, God is not after harm in your, in, in, your, in your world or in your soul. He's after life. But in order for that to happen, we have to let his spirit remove our callousness. Okay, so how does the spirit do that in your life practically? Well, he uses the word. He uses the Bible. So he uses your personal time with God. If you're spending time every day with God, reading the Bible, using one of our reading plans, the spirit is going to start working in your life and bringing aspects of your life to the surface. And you're going to say, oh man, I'm not even thinking about that and I need to. 
He's going to use the church, so he's going to use sermons, and he's going to use songs, and he's going to use other people who are speaking into your life with the truths of God's word. The Spirit is going to lead you to practice what the Bible simply calls repentance. And that can be kind of a loaded word sometimes. But all repentance means is that for whatever areas of our life, whatever doors that we have locked, we simply unlock the doors. And we say, God, I'm scared. This seems really intense to me. I don't know what's going to happen here, but my hands are open and I'm trusting you. Repentance simply means turning from trusting in ourselves and instead saying, God, I don't understand everything your word's saying. I don't know where this is going to lead, but I trust you. I trust that you're faithful. I trust that you love me. You've shown that in Christ. And so I'm opening my hands. I'm opening this door and I'm going to give you control. You see, when we lack God's word, when we don't listen to God's word, it leads to wickedness. But on the contrast, in verse, verse 20, Paul says that when we listen to God's word, it produces holiness. So listening to God's word produces holiness. This is verses 20 through 21. Paul writes this. But that is not the way you learned Christ. <laughs> Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So Paul draws a sharp contrast between what his Ephesian readers, these Christians, had, had learned and how the Gentiles were living. And he says, but that's not how you learned Christ. Kind of like a mom being like, that's not how you were raised, right? That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I taught you from the very beginning that holiness is an essential aspect of following Christ. That holiness is not a, a compartment of the Christian life. It is not something that you graduate into when you kind of get on the varsity team of Christianity. That what it means to be transformed and to become a Christian is to, is, is to increasingly pursue holiness. Because that is what Christ is. And if you look carefully, Paul uses words like learned, heard, and taught the truth that is in Jesus. Well, what truth is Paul referring to? Well, he's referring to two things, actually. Generally, he's referring to all of the scriptures. All of the scriptures. You see, in Luke 24, Jesus had been resurrected, and he was walking with two disciples from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. And they didn't actually realize it was Jesus yet. So they're asking him a bunch of questions, and Jesus explained to them how the entire Bible points to him. Luke 24, verse 27 says this, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, friends, the Bible is a book from God about Jesus for you. It's a book from God about Jesus and for you. You. So when Paul says, hey, from the very beginning, Ephesians, you were taught the truth that is in Jesus, he's referring in one hand to just all of the scriptures. So all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. He's saying you were taught the scriptures, and that is how you're going to grow in holiness. Then in verse 23, he's going to tell us a specific truth that they were taught that we're going to get to in a minute. But generally speaking, it was all of the Bible. And it wasn't just Paul who taught them this. Do you see kind of that phrase afterwards, like assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him? Like, you're like, what does that mean? Well, there was a common practice in the early church that when someone became a Christian, they would go through a year-long discipleship process before they were admitted into full membership in the church. A year long. So how do you like that for an assimilation process, right? You think our membership process is bad, right? So a whole year. And what they'd be taught during that time is how to read, interpret, and listen to God's word. That's what the entire process was about. And it's amazing, when you finish the process, they would baptize you and give you a bright white robe. Because the idea was that you were taking off your old way of living and you were putting on this new way of following Christ. So Paul's saying, hey guys, it wasn't just me who taught you that the truth is in Jesus, the truth of the scriptures when I came to Ephesus, but it was 
the whole church, you, you all know this. You've known this from the beginning, that you are called to listen to God's word and that listening to God's word produces holiness in your life. He says, stop living like the Gentiles do. Instead, listen to God's word and obey it. That's how you fight hard-heartedness in your life. Practically speaking, this is why we produce a Bible reading plan every month. It's why every month we have a new plan to help you spend time with God. We've actually got our July plans available today, so you can grab one on your way out. Because we want to help you, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, whether you are just investigating Christianity or you are a seasoned saint, we want to help you spend time with God every day. We want to help you learn how to understand and apply his word to your life. So the first thing Paul teaches us about holiness is that it is produced by listening to God's word. All right, here's the second thing. Holiness is what we were made for. Holiness is what we were made for. So it comes from God's word, and it's literally what we were created for. This is verses 22 and 24. So Paul continues his train of thought that he began in verse 21, and he writes this. Assuming that you were taught the truth of Jesus, what truth, Paul? What's the specific truth of Jesus now that we're talking about? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That phrase, to put off your old self, was a Greek phrase that people used to refer to changing clothes, to changing clothes. Clothing often indicates identity, doesn't it? So a judge will wear robes in the courtroom. A police officer will wear a uniform when he's on patrol. A prisoner will wear a jumpsuit when he's incarcerated. When our identity changes, so does our clothing. So when a prisoner fulfills his sentence, he puts off the jumpsuit of his imprisonment and he puts on the clothing of freedom. This then is the specific truth that is in Jesus that the Ephesians had learned from the very beginning of their faith. What is that truth? That before Christ, they were and we were children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. And thus, we walked in a way that was consistent with that identity. We practiced all sorts of impurity. We wore stained garments, you might say. We wore the orange jumpsuit of imprisonment. But now, we've been made alive together with Christ. That's Ephesians 2, verse 5. Our identity has been fundamentally changed. And as a result, we should walk in a new way. We should walk in a way that is consistent with our new identity. We should put on new clothes. You see, the pursuit of personal holiness, like I said a minute ago, is not something you graduate into in the Christian life. It's not something that you get to eventually when you get really serious about being a follower of Jesus. It is part and parcel with being a Christian. From the very beginning, the Ephesians had been taught this, and Paul is saying, hey, remember, this isn't a side item. This isn't something that you do if you are really, really serious, but you don't have to do it. He says, no, you've been made a new creature and you should start living in a new way. Your new identity in Christ should lead to new actions in your life. Your new identity in Christ should lead to new actions in your life. You're no longer a prisoner, so you should take off the jumpsuit. Okay, you tracking with me so far? Paul's saying this is the truth that was in Jesus, that new identity should lead, lead to new behavior. You aren't saved by your new behavior, it's not as though you can change your identity by behaving differently, he says, but now that your identity has been changed, it follows that you should behave differently. But here's what's real. I, I got really excited about this preparing this week. Paul presses this idea even further, and it's really, it's really incredible. He says that putting on the new self, so becoming more holy, just pursuing personal holiness, isn't just kind of one aspect of the Christian life, 
but it is the very purpose of you becoming a Christian. It is the reason that you were created. To put it another way, holiness is what you were made for. Holiness is what you were made for. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, you were taught to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What does that mean? Well, that phrase, likeness of God, is an allusion to Genesis 1, verse 26, which says that God created Adam and Eve, our very first parents, in his image and likeness. If you were with us back in January, we walked through this. We walked through the book, the first half of the book of Genesis. Well, being made in God's likeness meant that Adam and Eve possessed certain qualities which corresponded to God's character. So, God is truthful in all of his ways. There's no falsehood in God. So when Adam and Eve were originally created, they were completely honest. They were characterized by total honesty with one another and with God. God is wise and he possesses all knowledge. So Adam and Eve, in their original nature, were extremely wise. They were discerning. They were rational beings. Interacting with Adam and Eve was supposed to give you a picture of what God is like. Sort of like if you go to a really authentic Italian restaurant you sort of get a sense of what the food in Italy is like. That's what it was supposed to be, interacting with humanity. We were created to glorify and reflect God to the world through our personal holiness. We were made to reflect God. You see, here's what I think is, is really fascinating. Modern culture tells us to find yourself and then to be true to yourself no matter what pressures come your way. Paul agrees with that. He, you're like, what? Paul agrees with that. He simply says that we're looking for our true selves in the wrong place, right? So he says, yeah, absolutely. Find your true self, and then no matter what comes, stick to your guns. He's like, you just need to find, you need to find your actual true self. He says, your true self is further back than you realize and much more glorious than you ever imagined. He said, you have to press all the way back to the beginning of the world, to Genesis 1 and 2, to understand just what an incredible purpose you were created for. You and I were created to reflect almighty God to one another and to the world around us through our personal holiness. Because when we are holy, we reflect our holy God. This totally transforms how most Christians think about holiness. Because most people think about holiness, and you don't have to nod your head, but I think you're probably like this too, because I am. Most of us think about holiness as like, kind of like restraining ourselves from what we'd really like to do, Right? Like, it's kind of drudgery, like, okay, I got to be holy, I can't do this or that because God won't let me into heaven. And there's certainly self-control involved in holiness, but Paul would completely reject that idea that, like, holiness is, is drudgery. He would say, no, holiness is what you were created for. Holiness is the transcendent purpose for which we all long to be a part. Don't we all feel this desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves? Right? Don't we all feel that? Isn't what that what we're all looking for in relationships and travel and sports and a career? We, we want to be able to touch transcendence. We want to be able to experience a little bit of this bigger meaning that you know, supersedes kind of the everyday in and outs of our life. And Paul says that's because you were created to reflect God. That is the greatest and most transcendent purpose that there has ever been or will ever be. That's what you were created for. The problem is that in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve rejected God's word. They hardened their heart against him. And as a result, they infected all of us with the disease of sin. They literally infected our very nature. So now, rather than being born good by nature, we are born evil by nature. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
And if I need to prove this to you, just have kids, okay? You don't have to teach kids to lie. You have to teach kids to tell the truth. You don't have to teach kids to be selfish. You have to teach them to share. Why is that? Why is the natural inclination now of human beings, why do we have to restrict behavior in society with laws? Why can't we just, have, why can't we just say, hey, everybody treat everybody how you should? That'd save a lot of government money, right? It would save, it's because we want to know everything would devolve into anarchy, right? We have to be restrained now because of sin. Sin has changed our nature. So here's the problem. The very thing that you and I were created for, the thing we long for, the great and glorious purpose of humanity is now unavailable to us. Our natures have been changed and there's nothing we can do about it. Which is why Paul spent so much time in the beginning of Ephesians saying, understand this, you have been made a new person. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you have been made alive together with Christ. Do you understand why this is so important, how it all ties together? Paul's like, look, you didn't just change some, some mental you know, ascent. You didn't just agree to start living morally. You didn't just say, okay, I'll start voting this way or treating people that way. He said, no, 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 no. When you became a Christian, if you are a Christian right now, you literally had your nature changed. You went from being a child of wrath with a, with a sinful nature to now you are a child of God in Christ. And he has given you a new heart. He has replaced the heart that you had that was selfish and sinful. And he's given you a new heart that increasingly desires to serve the Lord. And what Paul says is, hey, that is why it's important that you live differently. It's the very reason you were created. You were created for something bigger than yourself. You were literally created for personal holiness. That blows my mind. It gets me really excited. I hope it does you too. Holiness is not just some random set of behaviors that God, in, in, you know, makes you do while you're here on earth. Holiness literally helps you do the thing you were created to do and allows you to reflect God's nature to the world around you. So my question is, do you think of it that way? Do you think of holiness as a good thing that demonstrates the glory of God? Or do you think of holiness as a straitjacket that keeps you from doing what you'd really like to do? Paul would say, hey, don't think of it as a straitjacket. It's not that. If you're thinking of it as a straitjacket, you maybe don't understand Christianity. You're still sort of operating off of a religious mindset that says, I got to do good things so God won't send me to hell. Paul's like, no, 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 no. You can never do enough good things. So Jesus came and did all the things for you, died in your place, rose again. You've been born again. You've been given a new nature now pursue righteousness because that is what your identity demands. So the second thing we learn about holiness is it's literally what we are created for. In the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, all the way back with our first parents. Here's the last thing that we, that we learn about holiness. Holiness is demonstrated in our relationships. It's demonstrated in our relationships, verse 25 through 32. So Paul, now that Paul's made his theological point, he sort of laid the theological foundation, he gets really, really practical. He starts with this phrase, therefore having put away falsehood. And that phrase shows us that he understands all the exhortations, all the commands he's about to give us to be illustrations of what it means to live the new life he has just described, okay? So these are all practical ways that you can live into this new nature. You can practically pursue personal holiness in these ways. And what I think is really important to note is that every single one of these illustrations that Paul chooses are about our relationships with one another. Here's why that's important. I think a lot of us think of holiness as the guy in the Himalaya mountains, right? 
Like he lives in the, in the hut, he's a hermit, and he just has these incredible quiet times, right? Like he spends like six hours with God every day, and all he does is like, like sing worship music on his little guitar, and like that's holiness. And Paul's like, that, sure, that could be holiness, but holiness is not demonstrated in you living by yourself. Holiness is demonstrated in how you treat people. Holiness is demonstrated, friends, in community, in the church. It's demonstrated in, in not how, you know, worked up you get playing your guitar. It's demonstrating how patient you are with your friends. It's demonstrating how kind you are to your kids. All right, so I'm going to flesh this out. He gives us five concrete examples, and I'm just going to kind of fly through these and, and give you some examples. All right, letter A, don't tell lies, rather tell the truth. Verse 25, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Remember, all of these are ways that we reflect God. So why is it that we should be honest? Well, God is truthful in all of his ways. He never lies. He always fulfills his promises. There is no deceit in him. Thus, as his people, we should be honest with one another. We should be truthful with our neighbor, so just anyone in the community, and we should be truthful with the household, the members of one another, the household of God, our brother, it's brothers and sisters in Christ. So this means that we should be truthful in big ways, okay? So we shouldn't cheat on our taxes, you shouldn't download term papers off the internet, right? Like you shouldn't outright lie to your spouse or your kids. Like those are all pretty obvious. But it also means that we should be truthful in little ways, okay? It means that we should be truthful in little ways. Well, what do I mean? Well, I mean we shouldn't embellish stories to make them more entertaining, right? We shouldn't spin situations to make them reflect more positively on us, right? We shouldn't take credit at work for something that was really somebody else's contribution, Right? God says, no, be truthful in all your ways because God is not just truthful in the big ways. He's truthful in the small ways. God is truthful. We should be truthful. Here's letter B. Don't lose your temper. Instead, practice righteous anger. Don't lose your temper. Instead, practice righteous anger. This is verses 26 and 27. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul is reiterating the teaching of Psalm 4.4 and of Jesus' life, really, that it is possible and necessary to, to practice righteous anger. You see, God feels anger towards injustice. He feels anger when the strong exploit the weak. He feels anger when people are marginalized in our community. He feels anger when his people worship false gods and it leads to their demise. If we're not angered by the things that anger God, we are not reflecting him accurately to the world. When you become a Christian, it does not mean that you just kind of subdue all of your passions and all of your concerns. It means that they are re redirected in a righteous manner. Now, unfortunately, most of us are prone to unrighteous anger, not righteous anger. I can get an amen on that, right? Like most of, that's how we tend to track. And so Paul immediately starts qualifying, right? Starts nuancing what he's saying. He says, hey, be angry and do not sin. Make sure your anger isn't because of your pride or your vanity or your feelings got hurt. Make sure it's not because of that. He says, secondly, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't nurse anger and allow it to fester. Don't become an angry person, right? But, but give your anger over to the Lord. In, engage. If you're, if you're angry because there's a group of people in our community that are being marginalized, get engaged. Don't let your anger just burn you up, but allow your anger to send you out. Finally, give no opportunity to the devil. What does that mean? Well, the evil one loves to take a spark of righteous anger and turn it into a flame of unrighteous anger. This is why some Christians you meet are such angry people. Have you ever noticed that? Especially on the internet? Don't go on the internet. Like, 
Well, what happened? Well, usually what happened is there is a spark of righteous anger about an issue or about something that they care really deeply about. They see it in the scriptures and they want to stand for it. And so they think of themselves as like standing for the truth. But what the evil one has done is he's taken that spark of righteous anger and he's turned it into this whole flame of condemning, judgmental, unrighteous anger. We have to be really careful about that. There's a very fine line between standing for the truth and being condemning. You see that? And I have to be really careful with that. Pray that for me. It's a very fine line, and we need God to help us practice righteous anger and not unrighteous anger because, man, the devil loves to take a little bit of righteous anger and just use it to cause division and use it to paint God in the wrong way, okay? So don't practice unrighteous anger. Practice righteous anger. God's anger is righteous, and it's always under control. So if you ever are overtaken by your anger, it is by default unrighteous. If your anger is driving you rather than you controlling your anger, it is unrighteous, okay? It is not the kind of anger that God feels. All right, letter C. Don't steal, but rather work and give. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So apparently there are some people in the Ephesian church that were living off of the generosity of others but weren't willing to work themselves. And Paul says that is not how it should be among Christians. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 show us that God in his very nature is a creator, that he creates, that he builds, that he produces. Days 1 through 6 of creation, he works hard and he builds this incredible world. And here's what's amazing. Then he blesses Adam and Eve with that world. So God works and then uses what he creates to bless people. Paul's point is you should do the same thing. You were created to work. So what does that mean practically? It means that you, whatever your job is, you should work hard at your job. God rejoices when you honor him by working hard at, hard at your job, serving people well, advancing. That's a good thing. Your job isn't bad. But what Paul would say is, hey, be careful because many of us think of our jobs as defining us or think of the, thing, the money that we make in our jobs as all about us. Paul says that's not how God is. What did God do with what he created? Well, he blesses us, right? He gives us sunrises. He gives us the beach. He gives us hot dogs, right? All kinds of good things. Some of you were like, I don't know about that. Um, Fourth of July theme here, right? He blesses people with what he creates, and that's what we're called to do as well. The money that you make at your job is not intended to be just for you. It's not to be so you can pay your rent and then go on all the trips you want to go on. God is like, hey, I'm giving this to you for two purposes. Number one is to provide for your physical needs. Number two is to bless other people. What does that look like practically? Well, that could look like taking your coworker out to lunch and just buying their lunch. It could be showing up with a, a coffee for somebody that didn't even ask for it. Right? It could be getting a little gift card for your D group leader just to say, hey, I appreciate you and I appreciate what you do for me. Right? It certainly means investing in the mission of the local church through giving. That's why we do that at the end of our services. Right? It's not, not because like we're like, we need you to give. It's like this is what God has created you to do. He's created you to work hard and to devote some of what you make to blessing our community through the work of the church. So God says, hey, don't steal, but rather give. Letter D, use your mouth for good, not evil. Use your mouth for good, not evil. Verses 29 and 30 says this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So speech is a wonderful gift from God. 
we see God creating the world with his word. We receive revelation of who God is through his word, the Bible. And Romans 10 tells us that saving faith comes from hearing and believing the word of God. God's word builds up. It does not tear down. As a result, our words should build up and not tear down. They should bring life, not death, to those who hear it. When corrupting talk comes from our mouths, it literally grieves God's spirit within us. Because God speaks words that are words that build up and that bring life, when we speak corrupting talk that tear down or that bring death, it grieves God's spirit within us because it's so opposite of his nature. So what does corrupting talk look like practically? That's not really a phrase we use all the time. What does corrupting talk look like practically? Well, it could look like really cutting sarcasm, right? Just like kind of a comment that just, man, cut somebody down in a conversation at work or with friends. It could be just insensitive comments that make someone feel excluded, right? It could be rolling your eyes when you finish a conversation. You know, like you're having a conversation, it's, ugh, you know, that's, I mean, that's corrupting talk. Here's one. It could be talking about someone rather than talking to someone. You know what I'm talking about there? It's you've got an issue with such and such in your community group or your work or whatever, but rather than talking to them, you're talking to this other coworker about it, Right? Your boss drives you crazy, so you leave the meeting and you just go and vent to, oh, you, you, I can't believe her, I can't believe him. I'm not saying there aren't frustrating people. I'm just saying that is corrupting talk. That breaks down unity and that is not consistent with God's character. So when we practice corrupting talk, we're actually not reflecting God in the world. When we, even if our boss is terrible, even if you're, you know, classmate or that fraternity brother or your friend, whatever, even if they're the worst, when we practice that kind of, behavior, it does not reflect God accurately to the world. Instead of being a light in our office or in our neighborhood, we actually end up looking just like everybody else. That's what corrupting talk looks like. Well, what does it look like to give grace to other people with your words, right? That's what Paul says. He says, hey, don't let it be corrupting talk, but may it give grace to those who hear. A couple practical things. It's just noticing things. Just noticing and thanking somebody for what they're doing. Man, it's encouraging somebody with something you've learned from the scriptures, it's assuming the best about somebody else. It's initiating to someone when they're quiet or shy or new. It's just using your words to build up rather than tear down, just like God. Letter E, don't be unkind or bitter, but rather be kind and loving. This is verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So here Paul lists six very unpleasant attitudes. And they all kind of have some things in common. Bitterness is when we are unsatisfied with our life and become sour towards others, right? So we're not satisfied with what God has given us or done in our life, so we're sort of bitter with people that have something that we would like. Wrath and anger are sort of closely related. So wrath is like impassioned rage and anger. So that's what you feel when you have the conflict with someone. Anger is sort of that seething feeling that settles in after the conflict. You know what I mean? It's not as impassioned, but it's sort of down there. You're sort of building a grudge, nursing anger against them. Sometimes it flares up into wrath, but mostly it's just sort of under-the-surface anger. Clamor, that's an interesting word. That describes um, people who ramp up conflict, okay? So that's people who take things to the next level. So you raise your voice, or you use really, really... Um, divisive language, like, well, you're either this or you're that, and you just act like there's no gray area, like, you don't think this, then you're just wrong, and you're dumb, and you're stupid, and I'm right. So, Clamor describes people who do that, whether in person or via text message or online, 
Okay, anybody that kind of elevates things to really uh, lots of intensity, we, we have a lot of politicians that practice clamor, okay? Like, just elevate everything into a massive conflict. That's clamor. Slander, uh, touched on this a little bit earlier, is just speaking evil of other people in any form behind their backs. Just any degrading comment about somebody, uh, which <laughs> in Christian circles, we often accidentally slander and we call it a prayer request, right? Like, I just like need some prayer for this person and what they're doing. Here's what I encourage you to do. We, people frustrate us, right? I frustrate you, you, we all do it. Rather than venting about what they did, I would encourage you to process how it's making you feel, okay? Here's the difference. I'm talking to Meredith, person at Justin has really ticked me off, right? I can do one of two things. I can tell Meredith all the problems with Justin, that would be venting, that's slander, that's sin. Or I could just process with Meredith how it's made me feel. Man, I'm feeling insecure, I'm feeling, man, not supported, I'm feeling all these things. That enables Meredith to then speak the truth to me. And she can say, well, no, that's, that's really not true. Like, man, you've been, made, you've been born again. You're a child of God. You're all these things. See the difference? Venting, I'm all about what's wrong with him. Processing, I'm all about what's wrong with me. Okay? If we could all make that shift, this whole sermon would be worth it. Okay? Processing versus venting. Been a very helpful principle in my life. All right, so, so Paul says, hey, no slander. And then malice is really a word that just sort of summarizes all of those characteristics. So Paul would say, if you're practicing any of those characteristics, you are a person of malice. That's what that word means. And... You know, before we assume that none of these describe us, I just want to consider the fact that Paul is addressing Christians. He's addressing Christians in Ephesus, and they lived in a really hard time to be Christians, so you have to assume that they are pretty good Christians. So if this stuff was happening in Ephesus, it's very likely that it's happening in us as well. And that's why he tells them and he tells us, hey, put this away. Take off those clothes and put on the new clothes of the gospel. Look, we should be characterized by the positive aspects of what Paul has said because they characterize God. And remember, we were created to reflect him to the world. Right? We should be kind, right? Which means gracious and in initiation towards others because God is kind towards us. Jesus said, hey, God makes the sun rise on the evil and the righteous. He makes the rain come on the wicked and the good. Right? We should be tender-hearted. Right? which means that we should feel compassionate towards each other. We should care for one another's hurts and needs. We should weep with those who weep. We should rejoice with those who rejoice. And finally, we should forgive one another, which literally means acting in grace towards each other. Why? Because as God in Christ acted in grace towards us. It means we forgive one another, we serve one another, and we care for one another because that is how God has treated us. Paul summarizes this whole thing in Ephesians 5.1. He simply says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. Simple enough, right? Holiness, be imitators of God. The problem is, it's not very easy for us to be imitators of God. Right? If you're anything like me, I find myself on the wrong side of that list. Maybe this morning you feel like the old self characterizes your life. There's some areas that you've put on the new self and you're like, man, when I'm honest with my, when I'm honest with me, I look a lot like my old self. I don't look that different from my coworkers and my classmates and my neighbors. So where do we get the power to imitate God? Where do we get the power to actually do this? You get it from verse two. It says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. You see, God knows that holiness doesn't define you. God is very well aware of your failings. He's very well aware of all the ways that we are still living 
like we did before. But being perfect in love and amazing in grace, he decided to do something about it. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to the world. Why did Jesus come? To be our example? To teach us some good moral principles? Sure, he did both of those things, but not primarily. Why did he come? He came to give give himself for us. He was the perfect image of God. He reflected God in every single way. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He was the perfect likeness of God. And as a result, he should have been welcomed into God's presence with glory and praise and honor. But instead, he ended his life crucified on a trash heap. Why in the world did that happen? Because in that moment, he wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for your sins and my sins. And when he was resurrected three days later, it was an offer of hope to us. It was our holy God saying, you are not a holy people right now, but through the power of the gospel, I can change you. If you simply repent and believe. If you simply stop hardening your hearts and you, and you listen to my word and you receive the gift of grace. You see, if you're not a Christian, you will never become holy on your own. You will never become holy through practices and disciplines. You will always be walking in your old self. We simply don't have the power in ourselves. And so your first step is not to try to do all these things that Paul said, but your first step is to say, Jesus, I need you to save me. I need you to become the Lord of my life. I need you to move into my life with your spirit. And if you're here and you're like me and you're a Christian, but there's some areas of your life that you're still struggling And there's some areas of your life where you look a lot like your old self and not a whole lot like Jesus yet. Paul would say, press into what Jesus has done. Be kind, be tenderhearted. Why, Paul? How, Paul? As God in Christ has been to you. As you look at the patience of Jesus in your life, you can't help but grow in patience towards others. As you look at the love of Jesus in your life, you can't help but be loving towards others. As you press deeper into the gospel, you will grow in holiness. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, our hope is not our discipline. It's not how good we are at changing our character. Our hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as we believe in that, and as we soak in that, and as we reflect on that, the characteristics that Paul describes start to start to be reality in our life. We start to put on the new self that we were created to put on. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are wonderful in all your ways. You are perfect in holiness. You are complete in righteousness. There's no deceit in you. You keep all of your promises. And by your incredible grace, you have made me and you have made so many people here your children. You have brought us into your family. Though we were by nature children of wrath, we have now been made alive together with Christ. And I pray by your spirit that that would take hold of our hearts and it would start to thrill us and change us and it would start to produce in us the fruit of righteousness. It would produce in us the new way of living that honors you and that we are created for. And Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here that isn't sure if that's happened in their life and they're looking at their characteristics and they're saying, I don't look a lot like God. They would come to you, Jesus, and they'd say, I can't do this, but you can. They would repent and they'd put their faith in you. And that we as a church would walk together and we would pursue holiness together and we would increasingly represent you to our community and to one another. 
God, we need your grace to do this. We can't do it on our own, but I'm grateful that you love us and that you're present and that you're powerful. I pray all these things in your Savior, our Savior, and your Son's name. Amen.